who was um, about 24 years ago, and I was staring at a wall. Um, it's not something I typically do, but in this particular day, I was staring at a wall. Interestingly, I was standing in a baptism tank, but I hadn't yet been baptized. I wasn't there to be baptized. I was there because I was getting paid to clean the church building. Uh, and I was cleaning out. They had like a drum kit and stuff like that that they were storing at that point in time in the baptismal tank. Decided that was a bad idea. We should probably clean that out. Might need to use it. And uh, so I was cleaning out the baptismal tank. And from where I was, I was looking across the room. And I could see the cross hanging on the wall of the worship center of that church. And it arrested my attention. And so I stopped. And I looked. And looking at the cross, something amazing happened. The Spirit of God took the truth of God's word that I'd been hearing over a period of months. The message of Christ's death, his suffering, on behalf of sinners. A call to repentance, to flee from my sins and to trust in him. And, and the weight of all that I had heard for all that time was packed up like onto a freight train and came barreling down the tracks and crashed into me in that moment as I stared at the cross. I realized for the first time that what happened on the cross was not simply about a man dying. It was about my Savior dying for me. In my place. I realized if the message of the cross is true, then I can no longer play with religion. I, I can no longer pretend like I'm going to worship God on Sundays and then through the rest of the week go and do what I want and live however I want with whoever I want. If Jesus took my death then he must also have my life. He purchased me. The cross is intimate and personal. It redeems and it purchases the lives of those who look to it. That Easter, I was back again in that baptism tank, this time to be baptized. Everything in my life changed. I was not perfect <laughs> by any stretch. I'm still not perfect by any stretch. But the whole direction, the whole course of my life was changed by what I saw in the cross on that day. And what I want to tell you this morning, friends, is simply this. As we look to the cross, I believe with all of my heart that the cross is not less powerful today than it was 24 years ago when it changed my life. And for some of you this morning, you need to take a long, hard look at the cross and ask yourself the question, is it true? Is it real? Was Jesus suffering for you. Either it's true or it's not. Either he died for you or he didn't. If he did, it changes everything. 
What I want to do this morning then is is to simply try to get out of the way. Uh, The outline for our time is as simple as I can make it. It's just two points. One, just thinking specifically about the cross. And the other, we're going to think about the immediate ramifications, what we see of the results of the cross in this text. And I'm going to try to get out of the way. I'm not going to try to tell stories or illustrations. I want your eyes as fixed as closely as possible on the cross. I want you to be confronted with the reality that Jesus came to earth to take our hell So that we could not only begin to taste heaven, but also become agents in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. All because of what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? This text tells us that Jesus took our hell. Firstly, we see this. Hell hell came upon Christ. Sometimes... um, Sometimes hell's hard to imagine, right? It plays with our minds a little bit, the different images that we have, and, and we try to think of it in these otherworldly kind of categories, or, or sometimes we have these images from whatever stories we've heard or what, whatever pictures we've seen drawn, and there's you know, the guy in the tights with the pitchfork, and you know, there's fire, and, and these types of things that we have in our mind, and it, it, it almost diminishes the picture of hell because somehow it begins to seem ridiculous and fundamentally disconnected from everything that we know in this life and in this world, when in the when in reality, hell is much simpler. It's much more earthy in one sense. And I believe that to some extent, the reality of what hell is, is something all of us have begun to experience even just a little in this life. As hunger tells us we need to seek food, So also our fear testifies to the reality that there is something to fear. What is your fear? This this one is, is, it's it's almost funny, but I do understand it. Um, The number one fear for many people in all the surveys is public speaking. It's being in front of people. Testifies to the insanity of preachers. But why? Why do we fear being in front of people and speaking? Because we know in a moment we could be exposed. We could say the wrong thing. We could look like a fool. We could have people mock us, reject us. We could have people see through the veneer, the thing that we're trying to put forward. We could have people see through the facade, and we could be exposed, seen for who we truly are or who we think we are, insufficient, weak, falling short. That's not the only fear. We have nightmares too, right? One of them's along the same lines. I remember recurring nightmare when I was a kid and I played hockey. We'd get, you know, I'd, I'd forget that we had a game or we'd get there and I wouldn't have my equipment. I'd be unprepared, you know? It's, it's the old, like, you get to school, you, there's a test and you didn't know there was going to be a test. Or you get to work and there's a presentation that you didn't know was coming. You're unprepared and you're about to be exposed there's the ever-popular, you show up somewhere and all of a sudden you realize you're naked. 
That's the worst dream, right? We have fears of being forgotten, left behind. Our fears testify to something of the nature of what hell is. So does our bitterness. If you look in your heart, who are the people with whom you are most prone to be bitter? Who are the ones who are the hardest, if there's a person who's the hardest to forgive? You know what? It's, it's usually someone who had it in their power to speak words of affirmation. To show love and acceptance and approval and to welcome you in to some place of acceptance, to some place of belonging. But instead, their words were harsh and distancing, rejecting, condemning. Their actions put you out rather than drew you in. See, the deepest longings of humans from our childhood up are longings innocent enough to be approved of, to have our parents smile at us and to tell us they love us and they're pleased with something that we've done. Fear is that we'll be exposed for being insufficient and unpraiseworthy. Our longing is for welcome. Our fear is rejection. Sometimes we conceive of hell as the presence of something. It's pitchforks and whips. I think the reality is a lot of times hell can be conceived as absence, the absence of acceptance absence of affirmation, the absence of community, the absence of welcome, the pushing away, and the affirmation of all that we feared about ourselves that were actually unlovable. All of this comes on Christ. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, into the, the barracks, the locker room, really for the for the guard, for the soldiers. And immediately, it does not take long in a room this size for us to mention locker room and experiences with people ganging up. And there are all kinds of immediate memories that flood back to us. Scars from childhood or whenever when we were taken advantage of and abused and mocked and bullied and we know the pain and the scars that do not leave. There is something so dehumanizing about being the one object of everybody's scorn in a context like this where everybody gangs up and they're all on the inside and they're all in on it and you are on the outside on the receiving end they gathered the whole battalion before him battalion would be about 600 people probably this is just those who were on duty somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe a room this size group of people this size all the soldiers with their weapons and their armor all together Picking on one man, and what do they do? Verse 28, they strip him, strip him naked in front of all of them. It's the nightmare, but it's reality. And instead of his clothes, they put on him a scarlet robe, something that a king should wear. And they twist together a crown of thorns. Hey, you're a king. Here's a crown. Here's a robe. They put the crown on his head and a reed in his right hand, because that's what kings have, right? They have a big staff. They give him a reed, which would break if you... Hit it, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
know, it's, it's interesting that the words that they say are true words. See, Satan, Satan's tool is only and has always been deception. But the reality is that lies are weaker than the truth, like darkness is weaker than light. And so if your only tool is darkness, you can't stop the light from shining. The, the truth of who Jesus is must be heard. It must be proclaimed. So what's Satan's tool to deceive and to turn us away from Christ? It's to enable us to see the truth in a moment, but in such a way that he's made it look utterly ridiculous. He's the king of the Jews, that's true, but really? Really? This guy's going to be your king? The soldiers don't think so. The religious leaders didn't think so. The political elite didn't think so. Can you really, can you really honestly fall down and worship this guy who's being mocked and beaten and spat on? It's ridiculous. It has the effect of doing what? If, if the truth looks ridiculous to us, then we feel somehow proud, intellectual, and morally virtuous for having seen the deception for what it is and rejecting it, even though what we're walking away from is just a distortion of the truth. They spit on him, verse 30. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head, driving the thorns into his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out. I don't want you to miss those four words. There's a leading away of Jesus, and then as they went out. There's, there's a departure. He's already gone from the temple precinct now to the Roman uh, barracks here, and now he's being led out right out of the holy city. Jesus is fulfilling in this moment, with this walk, a pattern that we've seen throughout Scripture all the way from the very beginning of time. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, And God banished them, he exiled them, he sent them away because they were unworthy and unlovable. They were sent away from his presence, out of the garden. They were driven away to the east. This is a pattern of God's people, right? You see this throughout history. When they finally have a home, a promised land, where God's supposed to dwell together again with them, like was supposed to be in the garden... But even, even in the temple where God most closely dwells, there's distance. There's a curtain that keeps them away. There's walls around the temple, and people can't just walk in here. They were in the land. They lived in the land for 300 years after the construction of the temple and Solomon and David and Solomon. And then what happened in the northern kingdom, Israel was taken into exile by Assyria. They were driven away from the land, away from the presence of God. The southern kingdom did a little bit better. They lasted till about 600 BC. In 605, they were taken away. Driven away from the presence of God, away from the place where God was supposed to dwell with his people. They would eventually come back, but they would never fully occupy the land with the presence of God. Throughout the whole intertestamental period, God's people were bounced around for 400 years as political powers fought for the land and they were simply pawns. 
like a ping pong ball, bounced around between empires, driven away from the presence of God, away from the presence of God, and here Jesus, to bear our curse for our sin, must be driven away out of the city. And as he went out, taking our rejection, as he went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the cross. This is what the soldiers did. Because they'd beaten Jesus so badly, he could not carry the crossbeam that he himself would be hung on in just a few moments. And so they compel someone to follow Jesus and to take up the cross, a startling image of what Jesus himself said. Again, a dangerous picture for those of you who would think about following Jesus. This is what it means. You, like your king, will carry a cross. Be rejected and suffer simply because of your proximity to him. Verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. What are the soldiers doing here? They, they know that Jesus, having been beaten, kept up overnight, dragged back and forth between trials, having been then beaten again and mocked again and spat on again and now completely exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, would at the very least be thirsty. And so they offer him a drink. Hey, do you want something to quench your thirst? It, it, looks, it looks like wine, the drink of a king. But in reality, they've mixed in myrrh to make the taste bitter like gall. It's, it's like offering someone who is dying of thirst a little bit of salt water. They mock him down to the very last. This is Jesus, when he knows what it is, won't drink it. Verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. This is striking. Matthew includes these words so brief, the count of the description, when they had crucified him. Because the picture is so vivid for anyone in Matthew's day, anyone who had seen it, you did not need this to be described to you and you did not want it to be written down because you knew how horrible the suffering is. To, to, to be taken to the cross, a cross beam would be put up, so a vertical board and a horizontal board, roughly the shape of a lowercase t, and, and you would either be strung up with ropes or with nails. In Jesus' case, it was nails pierced through his hands and through his feet so that he would hang, suffering, bleeding out, unable to breathe, hanging all his body weight on his wounds. To, to, to breathe, he would be forced to pull himself up on the nails which were piercing him, causing excruciating physical pain simply to take a breath, only to then be hung back down as your lungs slowly fill with fluid. Over time, your body would begin to convulse and, and you'd experience something known as paroxysms that would cause you to, to again to reach up and to try, to try desperately to breathe. The pain, the agony, the suffering, the anguish, all of it naked, rejected, 
exposed, mocked. He slowly suffers and dies. All this Matthew includes in just these words, when they had crucified him. And as he hangs there in the utmost torment and suffering of the cross, what are the soldiers doing? They're rolling dice to see who gets his clothes. His suffering is nothing to them. He is of so little account in their eyes that as he hangs there dying, they're saying, who wants his clothes? Then they sat down in verse 36 and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's one final dig from Pilate toward the Jewish leaders. Pilate hated the Jewish leaders and he hated the fact that they had managed to twist his arm to get Jesus on the cross. And so what does he do? He says, fine, you Jews, here is your king, as if to mock them. But again, all Pilate does is actually testify to the truth, though he doesn't know it. But in this moment, what's apparent to anyone with eyes to see is that Jesus in his death is simply seen as a political pawn. The Jewish people trying to accomplish something, Pilate trying to get a dig back. And somehow in the midst of it, the king of the universe hangs dying. This, this whole scene from verse 27 down to verse 37 could be described as Jesus among the soldiers. This is, this is really Jesus among the soldiers. What, what is their reception of him? They reject him. Jesus, contemplate this who from the beginning of time had legions of angels in glory at his command. You want to talk about an army? You want to talk about battalions? You want to talk about might and power? The heavenly host would obey his commands, but here human soldiers mock and belittle. He's been rejected. He's been put out by the Jewish people. The leaders and the people mocked, belittled by the Gentiles, by the leaders and down to the soldiers. Even his own followers sold him for 30 pieces of silver, denied they knew him before a slave girl and fled in his moment of distress. Jesus is utterly forsaken. He is utterly alone. He is rejected by all. But he's still surrounded by some. The next scene, maybe you could describe this way from verse 38 on. He's crucified among criminals. Here's Jesus, not among soldiers, but among criminals. Maybe he belongs here. That's what it looks like. Verse 38, then, to robbers. That's not a great translation of that word. Uh, They were associated with Barabbas, who had been involved in an insurrection. No thief would be crucified. Crucifixion was reserved. Even the Romans weren't so cruel to give it to everybody. They give it simply to the lowest of the low, to the worst of the worst. These men are insurrectionists. They're terrorists. The robbery, the thievery that they had committed was looting in the context of the riots that they had begun to try to overthrow Rome. So here's Jesus hung among terrorists and they're crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Maybe finally he's got a circle in which he belongs. Maybe these ones will accept him. Matthew paints the picture this way. Those who passed by derided him, 
wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down for the cross. Again, missing the profound irony that it's because he's the son of God, he's obeying, he's drinking the cup that the father gave him. He's obeying, your will be done, not mine. He's proving he's the son of God by staying there. Verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. In reality, he's saving others by not saving himself. They say, let, let him, he's the king of Israel. Let him now come down for the cross and we'll believe in him. Have you ever noticed how people who want to reject the claims of Jesus say they're doing so by evidence? If there was only evidence, it's poppycock to use a polite word. <laughs> Jesus had lived among them for three and a half years. He had ministered publicly throughout this time. He had performed countless miracles, taught on countless occasions. All the evidence in the world was there, there for them to see. But if the heart is heart, the eyes will always be blind. Hard hearts produce blind eyes they say, oh, we just need to see evidence. The problem isn't that the evidence wasn't there. The problem is that they didn't see. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And even the terrorists, verse 44, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus has nowhere to belong, nowhere he's welcome, nowhere he's accepted, not even among criminals. Even the passers-by who just look at him immediately reject him and mock him as he's humiliated in his suffering. How far? How far has Jesus come? How far has his condescension come? Consider the words of Psalm 103. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. His throne was in the heavens, but now he's mocked by soldiers on earth. His kingdom rules over all, but now he's rejected by Jews and Gentiles alike. All creation obeyed the voice of his word, and now they mock him for the truth of what he said. Even in his incarnation, it hasn't always been this way. Matthew chapter 3 records these words for us. Matthew 3 verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He had the pleasure of the Father and the presence of the Spirit. Dwelling in the community, the unbroken community of the triune God where he was welcomed and approved of. Where he belonged. He had the pleasure of the Father. He had the obedience of the angels. 
the praise of all creation who beheld him. He dwelled in unapproachable light. But look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. So from about noon to about 3 p.m., there's darkness. Do you remember God created the heavens and the earth? And what was the first act of ordering creation? He said, let there be light, and there was light. But in this moment, at the peak of day, there is darkness. All creation is being unraveled because of sin. The judgment of God for the sins of his people is coming on Christ in this moment. Darkness until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22, 22, the cry of the disconsolate, the cry of the one abandoned, forsaken, distanced from God. Look at the bystanders in verse 47. What do they do? They hear it and they say, maybe he's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. We don't know why. Maybe they're trying to prolong his life so that he can wait for Elijah. Maybe, maybe they're trying to mock him even further as he suffers. We don't know. But what's clear is they don't understand anything of what's happening they say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Save him. <laughs> Elijah, Elijah, remember, Elijah didn't die. So maybe, maybe the mythology goes something like this. Elijah's still alive, and so if someone's really suffering, then Elijah can come and take him so he won't die. Maybe that's what's going to happen. Who knows? Whatever the point, or whatever is going on, the point is simply this. They completely misunderstand. Do you, do you know how alienating it is? Do you know that experience when you're trying to communicate something and people just cannot understand what you're saying? There's a feeling of helplessness when you're in another country and you don't speak the language and you're like, you're trying to communicate. But it's even more frustrating in some sense when you're talking the same language as people, right? And they just don't get it. No one understands. Christ fulfilling all of redemptive history, the righteous sufferer, now experiencing the suffering for sin that has been demanded of every generation cries out to testify to the fulfillment of Psalm 22, and they're like, maybe he's calling Elijah. He is so utterly alone. Even as God, his Father, and yet, Jesus remains somehow sovereign. Verse 50, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus, in the moment of his suffering, still retains his sovereignty and will not die until it is finished. And when it is finished, he yields up his spirit to his Father. He suffers faithfully to the end. Here's how Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a poet of the 19th century, describes this scene as Jesus cries out. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken, it went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. 
It went up from the holy's lips amidst this lost creation that of the lost, no son should use those words of desolation. Jesus was utterly betrayed. Naked, exposed, forsaken, misunderstood, utterly alone, without relief. It was the nightmare from which there was no waking because it was reality. He bore our hell. Strung up between heaven and earth, abandoned by both, he endures our hell. Somehow worse in this moment than the mockery of man is the silence of God as he cries out. Somehow worse than their abuse is the absence of his father. In the presence of his vitriol, the question remains, where is his vindication? As the people cry out in vitriol, you, you liar, you fake, you phony, where is his vindication? The only innocent one who ever lived was condemned as guilty and suffered and died. The one whose very presence makes wherever he is heaven, somehow in this moment takes our hell. He bears our sin. He takes our curse. He dies in our place. And with pain that is inexplicable, the Son offers himself eternally through the Spirit to the Father. And with unutterable sorrow, the Father slays the spotless lamb and receives the sacrifice. Why did this happen? It's because of your greatest need. What is your greatest need? I'm not asking what you feel is your greatest need. I'm asking what in reality, what in truth is your greatest need. Don Carson describes it this way. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. Any answer other than my greatest need is to be reconciled to a holy God because of my sin is abominable blasphemy. Because God would not have crushed his son for anything less than our greatest need. What has your sin done? It has made you rejectable, not praiseworthy. It has denied you of the closeness and the love of others that you have longed for. It has removed all comfort and peace from your life as you have participated in the insurrection, not against Rome, but against the true king of the universe. You have participated in the evil. You have brought further corruption to a fallen creation. You've joined with all humanity in the crowd, crying out, crucify him. You should rightly die. 
this text tells us that Jesus died in our place. He took our hell so that what? So here's the second thing, the last thing, so that now heaven, now heaven comes to earth. Verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This, this comes heavenward. The, the curtain of the temple was far too high for anyone to be able to climb and to tear, and it was far too thick for any human to be able to just go simply tear. So as Jesus dies, there is testimony from heaven that the curtain that barred access to God in the temple has been torn. See, if, if hell is about your casting off, then what Christ has done is somehow now about you're being brought in. You're welcomed into the presence of God. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. Death somehow is being overcome. Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, in just a couple days, they went into the holy city and appeared to many I have no idea what's going on there, except I do know this. It testifies. It testifies to the reality of what Jesus' death is accomplishing. Here in this moment, Jesus is not yet resurrected. He has just died. Spring has not fully come yet, but the thaw is beginning. The cracks on the ice are beginning to show. The, 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 the rivers are beginning to melt. Death is overcome. The grave can no longer hold. This testifies to this reality, that the death that you fear has been overcome by the death of Christ. The access that, that you long for, the approval, the praise, the welcome that you long for, there has been a way made for you to know God through the death of Christ. Verse 54 when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. This is remarkable. Gentiles are all, he doesn't have any idea. This guy could not write a systematic theology. He doesn't know what he means. He's speaking so much better than he knows. But the reality is this, the Gentiles will begin to see and to confess that, the son, that Jesus is the son of God. And there are more. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and Mary and, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. Something compelling about the picture, just like there was a cross prepared for Barabbas. There was a tomb prepared for Joseph. <laughs> and Jesus takes both of their place. He's laid there. And they rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. This is a profoundly dark and sad moment. If you put yourself in the moment where you have seen Jesus suffer indescribably and he has been crucified and he has died and he has been taken down off the cross and now buried and with him buried are all of your hopes for the kingdom 
that he had begun to proclaim, or so you think. But in the saddest and darkest of moments, God is still at work preparing for what is next, which is the kingdom will come through the proclamation of the people who in this moment are weeping because they don't yet see what God is doing. But in the midst of it, God is working all circumstances so that there's a clean linen shroud that can't be confused with another one. There's there's an empty tomb that's never been used so that Jesus' body can't be confused for another one. There's testimony of witnesses who've seen Jesus his whole life who can't be confused of a case of mistaken identity. There's a testimony of Pilate and the soldiers that Jesus must have been dead. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken him off the cross. There is unshakable, irrefutable testimony, evidence for the testimony that will be proclaimed by these people, by women and men, by rich and poor, by Jew and by Gentile, that Jesus is Savior. This is the message that the church will proclaim. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The hope and the message of the church the testimony, the witness that we bear, the proclamation of the coming of his kingdom is this. Christ died once for all so that we could live with no fear of hell, but a promise of comfort promise of comfort where Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. A promise of acceptance. Everyone who comes to me, I will turn away none. A promise of belonging and approval. Well done, good and faithful servant is the word that awaits us. Enter into the joy of your master. A hope and a future where you will forever be seen and welcomed and praised. A partaker of the very glory of the resurrected Christ because he took our hell. The promise, you are seen, you are loved, and you will never be forsaken because Christ once was. The cross, if you see it, will change you as implications for all of us who look to it today. Maybe you've never dealt with the cross. I urge you to stare at it long and hard and to not leave the seat that you are in right now until you have dealt with it. Did Christ take your hell or does it still await you? If he died for you, it changes everything. He took your hell once on the cross so that his heaven could become yours and you could become a participant in the spreading of the message of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth now. Let's pray.